Chicago is more than great food, iconic sports, legendary music, and crooked politicians. It's a community of people who, at their core, care about one another and their city. We're chatting with new and native Chicagoans about all things local on The Chicagoan Podcast. How you guys doing? I'm Tony Arce. Welcome to The Chicagoan Podcast. Today, I'm joined by social entrepreneur Jamie Elder. Jamie, thank you for being here, brother. I appreciate you having me, man. It's a blessing. No, it's, uh, it is a blessing, and uh, what a way to spend our, our birthdays together. I didn't even know that we were so close uh, in, 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 in dates yeah. <laughs> and age, too. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that's the reason I, probably, I liked you right away. You're part of the cancer mafia. Right, uh, right. Have, you know, the, this is a cruel world that always tries to come down on us, so we got to support each other. Absolutely, man. It really is, though. And uh, no, it's, it's been uh, very refreshing to get to know you, especially with you know what you're doing. And I think the, the, the title that you have, Social Entrepreneur, I love that. And you know, why don't we start with where, where you're from originally, because uh, you are a Midwest guy. Yeah, uh, born and bred in the Midwest. So I'm part of, the, um, I guess, I'm a legacy of the Great Migration. So my father's originally from Memphis, Tennessee. My mother's from Jackson, Mississippi, but they moved up during the middle of the 20th century. So I was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, yeah, and your dad, I mean, a little older, right? Yeah, so he was he migrated in 1948. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. So a lot of people don't realize, like, I'm the grandfather, I'm the grandson of a slave. Wow. Uh, so my grandfather was born uh, January 26, 1865 wow. in a plantation in Arkansas. So they moved to Memphis because that used to be a refugee camp for freed slaves. And so then my father, you know, he went to the United States Army. I know we kind of shared that in common as well. Um, after he graduated high school, he started in World War II in 1948. When his younger brother moved up to Racine, Wisconsin, he pretty much said, hey, you got to come up to uh, the Midwest. Like, this is an opportunity for black people. And so looking at the racial climate down in Tennessee and also the lack of job opportunities since back then that was mostly rural, uh, he decided to move up. He said Chicago's too big, uh, racing is too small. He settled in Milwaukee in 1948. Wow. And what was that like growing up, knowing having that connection? I mean, it, it seems crazy to us so far away, but it's really not, you know, and and then your dad would be, uh, were you still alive? He'd be 102, 103? 103 years out, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, what was that like, having that knowledge, that connection to something so meaningful and impactful? Yeah, I, sadly, I didn't appreciate it growing up, I don't mm. think. Because, uh, you know, you, I think you know, I think it's really hard for most individuals to, like, idolize their parents because they're like, you're, they're your parents. Yeah, you yeah. see them every day. You see the good, bad, and ugly. And for me, I think I kind of took it for granted. And also being like a low-income black neighborhood, a lot of other kids didn't have fathers in the home. And so I kind of just assumed, like, you know, a lot of people had older fathers. Uh, I didn't think I was anything special or unique. And, like, he was just always there. Like, he retired uh, after working 40 years at A.O. Smith in 1988. So from the time I was about six years old until he died when I was 19, he was always in the household. Oh, wow. That's, uh, I mean, that's also a blessing too, right? I mean, look, you got to spend that time with him and... Um, that's amazing. And now tell me about that. Cause you growing up there, you were not the, uh, the, uh, the, what do we call it? The perfect citizen, right? <laughs> we'll just say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Milwaukee, the thing people don't realize about Milwaukee, especially that this is like a Chicago podcast, right? Is that Milwaukee is the largest city in the world. That's within 80 miles of Chicago. Like people don't, and like I talked to a lot of my friends in Chicago. Like they either don't think about Milwaukee, they never go there. But like, yeah, that's that's Milwaukee's claim to fame. But even though Milwaukee hates it, because it's kind of like Chicago's a big brother that doesn't ever recognize yeah. he exists. Yeah, and it's and, a beautiful city. Oh uh, yeah, it's it's basically it has everything Chicago has, just a third of size. Yep, yep. Uh, but to you know, kind of question you're asking, it's also that. 
we also have a lot of Chicago problems. So that it came with you know segregation, uh, deindustrialization. When it came to redlining, comes to all those types of things. Mm. And so you know you probably remember this as well. Growing up in the '80s, you, you were just, most of urban cities were hit with the crack epidemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had factories shutting down. Like my father's job back in the peak, they had maybe twenty, thirty thousand employees. If you go there today, it's probably less than two hundred. Um, so experience, you know, going living in a, a, a great middle class black neighborhood and then going into the early 90s, it became the hood. Uh, and so I wasn't immune to some of those effects. So a lot of times when I you know, grew up in my elementary school, I had my mother. She was a teacher's aide my entire life. She won an award for volunteering. Um, so I always appreciated her. That's where I got a lot of my, actually, a lot of my academic knowledge came from her, even though she was never college educated. Mm. Uh, but then at the same time, when I started going to middle school, that's when I started, you know, relating to other kids outside of my, what was my middle class enclaves. And so for me to develop those types of social relationships in which a lot of them probably didn't come from strong homes, living in even worse neighborhoods and environments, I started rolling with them. So that's how I got exposed to like the street life going into high school because, Thinking for a lot of young men, um, had a lot of issues with my own identity. Uh, I was like always book smart. I could always, I always went to, you know, I I started reading the accelerated level when I was in kindergarten. Wow. They made me read the first graders. I thought I was in trouble. They were like, you and this other girl, you have to start reading with the first graders. I was like, why do something wrong? Mm-hmm. I didn't understand it. Uh, even I was put in a program for academically talented when I was in uh, second or third grade. Again, I thought I was being, you know, uh, made example out of. I thought they were taking me out of the class of my regular friends and punishing me. They're just like, no, you're you're at acceler- accelerated academic level. We need to put you in these special program. So I was always book smart. It's just a matter at I didn't apply myself. Right. And then you know when I got to sounds like, like you were smart, not just book smart. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just I was always naturally smart, but it's just a matter. Of, but going to the high school, I was basically started saying like, look. Uh, they wouldn't let me play basketball because I couldn't have self-insurance because of my father's age. He was on Medicare, which didn't apply to me. My mother didn't have health insurance. Uh, a lot of other things happened in my home. So I just got kind of like disillusioned and then kind of fell into a street life with my friends. And I just wanted to be like a Playboy thug. Wow. Yeah. And, and it's easy, too, because when as we we're talking about it, it's when you have those those uh, gifts of, of intelligence and whatever and, and, and thinking you're even smarter than than everybody else, right? <laughs> that you start to use those gifts for something bad, right? And for <laughs> yeah. you, but but it's, it's crazy because as it is that, you know, whether, I mean, do you mind if we talk about it a little bit? Yeah, or, you definitely. Know? I, think, I think the statute of limitations is over with. Yeah. <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> um, but then you got in trouble with gangs in high school. You started selling fake Movado and Rolexes, started stealing cars even. And, you know, as we talk about it, it's, it's one of those things that when you have this energy and you have this intelligence, that it, it can be put to bad use, right? And, and now you found a way to put it to good use, but that it's a lot of the same kind of uh, uh, mechanics around it. When you talk about business and you know supply and demand and you know what you're looking for and how you sell it, so and what are those things that looking back now, one you reflect on that obviously you don't identify with that, but that you take away from and learn from and apply to your life now. Yeah, the main thing was that, you know, I was always in public schools my entire life, even though I'm a, uh, Rufus King, I always want to give him a shout out. That was, at the time, I was there the top 100 high school in the nation. Uh, it was always focused on college. It was, it was literally Rufus King for the college bound. That's how they kind of like spelled it their name. <laughs> like, and so, but, you know, as we know, now know in 2023, not every smart person is on a college track. Right. And so I was an entrepreneur in high school. I just didn't know what an entrepreneur was. I think I couldn't spell it. 
and we didn't have entrepreneurship programs, right? This is in the late 90s. This is before you start, you know, Silicon Valley's blowing up, all these accelerator programs are coming out, all these youth entrepreneurship programs are coming out. And so I didn't, I wasn't being fulfilled in high school. So I had to find my own way, even though I didn't know what I was looking for. So that's what put me in those types of environments to where I said, hey, I'm the only kid on my, my block with a computer. So let me, you know, buy fake Rolexes and Movados off of eBay and then sell them in the street. Um, you know, my friends were like, hey, we, you know, we can still close out our job that we work at. Let's sell those in the street. Oh, we're enterprising. We, we learn how to steal cars. Let's sell those. Let's drive them around, look cool. And then when we're done with them, we can sell them. And then, you know, that starts escalating from there to where I said, uh, ultimately end up in pharmaceuticals. And so, you know, if it wasn't for the blessing of the military, then I would have probably been another statistic. And, and how, how did you even come to that, making that decision? Simple. Um, you know, me and one of my good friends, I ain't gonna say his name, but he always, he, he knows who he is, but he's definitely a good friend to this day. I mean, he's happily married with a child, so I put him out there. But one of the things was, you know, one day I was sitting in front of my house, uh, we was washing a stolen car. Uh, he was, you know, selling dope out the alley, and my father came out on the porch. Um, yeah, that's how bold I was. Like, I was doing this stuff right from my house. And he just said, uh, my father's like, hey, there's a Sergeant Moore on the phone for you. I was like, Sergeant Moore? Like, I, again, I didn't want to ever be a thug thug. Like, I never was the type to, like, wear my hat banged in public. I wasn't carrying a weapon, none of that. I get into fights and all that. But I just wanted to be cool enough to get girls and cool enough to have my friends. And so I'm thinking, like, I've never been in real trouble, like arrested trouble. So I didn't know, like, the cops don't call you to, like, schedule your arrest. <laughs> and that's, but in my mind, I'm like, oh, man, somebody snitched. We're about to go down and all this kind of stuff like that. But um, so it felt like a 100-yard walk up to the den to pick up the phone. And so, yeah, I picked up the phone and he said, hey, this is Sergeant Moore from the United States Army. I'd like to talk to you about all the opportunities to, you know, if you listen and join active duty. And so I was like, oh, okay, I just felt a sense of relief. I'm like, oh, yeah, you can come on down, come talk about it, whatever. Because you usually come to my high school, I just ignored them. But now I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, sure, come on in. And this is um, when he started talking to me about the opportunities in the military. My father is sitting right behind me. This is where I said my father played a huge role in my life. He had been to the Army again through World War II. He's hearing about, hey, you can make like $1,000 a month. And he used to make like 100 bucks a month or whatever. Uh, he's talking about all these, uh, you know, benefits with health and college and travel and everything like that. And so one of the things I, when my uh, spiritual mentor, Bishop Omar Jawar, said, there comes a time and place in everybody's life where you might have a pause, and it's up to you what you do with that pause. And that was the pause. And that pause, because urban environment and the mentality for a lot of young people, it's moved at the, it moved at the speed of light. And so having that pause, having that chance to reflect and think in that moment, especially after the recruiter left, I just start thinking about like, look, um, I, I have a lot of opportunities about wasting them. And my father brought it home when he said, look, you got four options right now because he had a very strict 18 and out rule. My sisters were both gone by the time they were 18 years old right after high school. And I had to, as, a, as the only boy, I had to leave too. And so he said, you got four options, either go to college, get a career, um, go to the military, go to jail, but pick one. And I knew my, I was probably on the way to jail. And so that's when I decided to pick the Army after my junior year, did the delayed entry program and shipped out uh, that next summer, wow. pretty much at high school. <clears throat> wow. So what do you tell students or uh, you know, young people when you see them going down that, that path? And what advice would you give you know, someone's listening that, that finds themselves in that or knows someone that's like that? You know, how, 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 how can they make that shift when they might be in so deep at that point, right? 
Yeah, I mean, that's the hardest part, right? So even email went to went to the military when I started my first business, I was twenty one. The thing is, is like you can you can leave the hood physically. It takes a long time for the hood to leave you. Yeah. Uh, because you still maintain those types of relationships, you still maintain your loyalty to your friends, stuff like that. And so one of the things I always try to do when I'm talking to young people is really you know, speak to them, uh, speak life into them where they're at. Like, always, I'm always big on meet people where they're at. It's not for me to take my, you know, collegiate experience, my business experience, uh, my upper middle class experience and project on other people. It's about me meeting people where they're at and understanding who they are and what influences them. And so I always have to think about, you know, if there's a, who's a key person influence, who's like the OG in their life, who's like getting, to, whether it's a gang member, whether it's your parent, whether it's a barber, whether it's a preacher, whether it's a teacher, whoever it is. And those are the people I need to be able to either weaponize them to carry my message, or I need to understand what they're saying to that individual who might be leading them astray, and then take, and then basically have a counter message. And that's how I generally approach them. Wow. And I mean, you talk about spiritual mentors and, you know, I wouldn't social entrepreneur. Tell us about how, let's kind of fast forward a little bit. Mm -hmm. Where are you at now? What are you doing? And um, yeah, again, how I just love how the skills always apply. Yeah. And so I became a social entrepreneur essentially to your to what we discussed previously is that, you know, when I was in the military, one of the things that happened was that, you know, I, I recognized really quick. I didn't want to be a computer geek. I had a six year contract to be an information system operator analyst. And that's not something I want to do. And I also didn't want to work 40 years in a factory like my father. And so I do a bunch of reading, like my first book that ever like changed my whole mindset was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And a lot of people probably think it's cheesy, but like it worked for me as a young, you know, 19 year old man in the hood, coming from the hood and just working in the army. And so at that point in time, I realized like, oh, wow, I need to like find a way to like get into business investment or ownership. Mm. And I actually first I like, OK, investment was like stock market. So I'm like, I watched like Wall Street movie or whatever. I'm like, oh, OK, I could be like, oh, I could be like those people on like Wall Street. So. I started like I taught myself the stock market, and I started investing in Disney, like a percentage of my paycheck every single month. And I'm like, this is slow though. It's like stock goes up, stock goes down. I'm like this ain't Gordon Gecko. I thought I'm trying to be him. Uh, so after that, I started reading more, and I found I read a stat that 80% of multi-millionaires attributed their wealth to business ownership or investment. And so I said, I need to own. Uh, so I just, then I started teaching myself like how do I actually make a business purchase, and that's how I ended up. No, long story short, uh, I took my guy out the military. I took my inheritance after my father's passing, and I bought the first 100 guy junk franchise in Wisconsin. Uh, so I was a 30 year franchisee back in 2004, wow. definitely the youngest at 21 years old. You know, and I think I was the only black black person at the time, or probably the second black person in the whole franchise system, and so. I ran for a couple of years and then sold it. Started another land, a business called Landlord Concierge. Ran that for a few years. The market crashed. Uh, let that go. Uh, got into marketing company, and then I was getting ready to start another business and move to Charlotte. But then, by good luck and fortune, um, one of my good friends was a, serving for Governor Scott Walker as a secretary of workforce development. Working on two hundred fifty thousand jobs pledge. Uh, so me and him had a conversation in the Governor's Conference Room one day in Milwaukee. And I just told him, like, I have all these ideas about urban development, economic development, entrepreneurship in Central City. And he's just like, okay, just do a, give me a white paper and maybe a resume and I'll see what happens. And I didn't think anything of it. And then six months later, I got appointed to state government to be the director of Office of Urban Development. So wow. I was 29, uh, serving in, in the governor's administration uh, for our Department of Children and Families. And that's what 
radically, you know, changed my mindset because my mentor, Secretary Eloise Anderson, uh, you know, she taught me so much about community uh, to this day. And one of the things I recognized was that as a person who contributed to the harm of the inner city of Milwaukee, I had to go back there and, you know, be a part of the solution. So I wanted to take everything I learned um, from my business career and then apply it towards these social issues. So that's when I started working at the intersection of capitalism and community. And that's how I became a social entrepreneur. Man, it's in our name, community and business. I mean, you're <laughs> in the right place. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And, you know, part of it, too, is that you um, you have a private equity firm now, right? And that's, mm-hmm. that's really where I think I'm hearing that, like all these ideas, and now you're just do it on a bigger level, right? Yeah, so two things. So that's what brought me to Chicago. So, um, so one of the things is when I left Milwaukee in 2016, I did uh, venture. So actually, I'm, I lived in like um, five cities in like five years. So I always tell people I moved twice for the money and twice for the honey. <laughs> and so going from... I like that. <laughs> yeah, my father said, if you're smart, you either move for money or women. So yeah, yeah. Uh, meet a woman with money, you definitely got to follow her. <laughs> Uh, so the first time I moved from Milwaukee to D.C., that was definitely a money move. And then D.C. to Baltimore was with my ex, uh, who's, again, still a great friend to this day. And then Baltimore and then Fort Wayne, Indiana was definitely for her because I never saw myself going to Indiana. But then after Indiana, I came to Chicago because uh, out of my lessons I learned from my different careers in public and private sector was basically when you're trying to do this type of work in communities, especially serving black and brown people, um, those with the funds and resources, they don't look like those they're serving. And so there's this huge cultural disconnect. So you spend months and months and months trying to help accelerate their knowledge and their learning understandings of what's happening in communities. And as you know, what happened, communities aren't static. Like they move at the speed of technology. They move at the speed of light almost. And so what might be true in January might not be true in June, depending on who got arrested, depending on this new nonprofit, depending on this board changing, depending on various factors, a company closing. And so I said, you know what, if we really want to be impactful in a sustainable manner, we need more people who look uh, like us on the other side of the table. So my good friend and partner, Isaac McCoy, he's always, when I first met him, uh, I, I said, what do you want to do long term? He, at the time, he was working in Obama uh, administration. And he said, I want to be a philanthropist. I didn't know what that meant. Like, like I never heard a young black man say, I want to be a philanthropist. But that, what I realized later on was that he wants to have so much money that he covers all his needs, all his wants all his luxuries, and after that, he has enough money to give away. And that's what he, and I said, okay, for us to be able to solve this problem in a systemic way, we gotta go more upstream. I just can't be a bag man for everybody else to try to solve these problems. I need to have to bag myself. And so that's why we started a private equity firm called I2J Group, in which we raised a bunch of capital overnight. We made our first acquisition in a kitchen bathroom modeling company in Dallas, Texas, called Surface Pros, uh, that we're starting to grow. Uh, about to do a spin out of our cabinet company called Happy Cabinets. And then my full-time job, though, here in Chicago is actually a Revolution Institute, which are kind of doing a lot of the same things. That's amazing. And as, as you're doing this, one of the things you had mentioned uh, earlier was that you work with unlikely partners to do unlikely things, and your desire is to break divisions between people. How, how does that play out in all that? Yeah, so a lot of people, um, they look at me and think right, right away, it's like, how does, again, a young black dude from the hood end up working with Governor Scott Walker? who was probably at one point one of the most hated people, at least in the city of Milwaukee, right? Republican, so on and so forth. Uh, That was the first example of me doing that. I said, 
I said, look, I didn't go into the Walker administration to work on politics. I worked. I went to the Walker administration to work on impact. That's why I worked with the Department of Children and Families. What is what is partisan around child welfare, reducing abuse and neglect? What is partisan around you know, working with child support fathers, ensuring they got job security so they can, you know, provide means and resources to their families? Uh, what's partisan about early childhood education? There shouldn't be any politics around this. Uh, so that was me trying to work with an unlikely partner to do unlikely things. And during that, during my time there, uh, with all the programs and policies Secretary Anderson passed and I was able to enforce and all the uh, grants I got approved, we probably deployed well over $4.5 million just to the city of Milwaukee alone, just wow. for black and brown families wow. uh, that people don't talk about. And then going beyond that, when I went to Washington, D.C., I worked for Stand Together Foundation, which was part at the you know part of broader Coke network, and so people always identify that with the Coke brothers, like Charles and David Coke. Again, it's like how does a young black man from the inner city of Milwaukee work with the Coke brothers? I said, well, the same way you give me awards for working with two brothers who sell Coke. <laughs> like when I when I work to change their lives and reduce recidivism, get them job opportunities, so they stop selling drugs, you want to give me an award. But if you want me to work with two guys from Kansas who have the means and resources to impact communities, all of a sudden that's something wrong or something you know evil. I'm like, no, nah, like what I really need to do is, you know, if we don't really talk about a country and community, we got to understand diversity, equity, inclusion goes both ways. So I always live my life through that lens. Wow. And another thing was just how the people that you're working or, or trying to represent, right, they don't have a platform. And that's a big part of what we see eye to eye on and what this <laughs> community is about, right? Um, what do you as those emerging leaders, how do you spot them and, and, and how do you cultivate that, that community of emerging leaders, but also build them up with the experience and knowledge you have? Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question. I mean, one of the things is, is like, so probably one of my toxic traits is probably that I don't like the movie Black Panther. <laughs> and the reason being is not that I don't like the movie or the character or all the jobs that were created for all the actor, actors and actresses. It's not that. It's that I didn't like the fact that this idea that all these um, black people, especially specifically Africans, with high intelligence, uh, with these high abilities, it had to be a fantasy call Wakanda. And from my lived experience, that's untrue. Like if you go through my phone book right now, if you look at all the engineers, scientists, doctors, uh, bankers, innovators, uh, investors, I mean, even before we start this podcast, like, you know, my good friend called me. She's an anesthesiologist, right? She's only like, you know, early 30s, has one of the high, you know, she's from Chicago, went to Northwestern, knocked all those, you know, some of the best schools in the country she's attended them. Now she's doing high level work in the health industry. It's like, I, I see Wakanda every single day. Every single day. And the difference is, is that people doing the work, the people who are talented, they don't have time to go on Twitter and talk about it. They don't have time to be on IG flexing and posting about it. They're just doing the work. And so I'm the type of person to say, you know what, I'm not as smart as a doctor or a physician. I'm not as smart as these scientists, engineers, innovators, entrepreneurs. Uh, one thing I'm really good at is basically kind of serving as an ambassador to, sh to showcase some of the change makers. And so I definitely want to you know, see what we can do to give them a bigger platform to share more of their stories, let them know they're out here. Yeah, and that's what it is, right? I mean, that's that's a big mission of ours. Is I've always believed that if you can't see it, you can't dream it, right? And you can't you can't believe it. And mm -hmm. so, you know, when it, when you see that, what impact have you seen, or or what experience have you had around that, or maybe just advice uh, in terms of being able to uh, bring that light into communities where, 
I mean, some of these kids that live in the city have never even seen the lake or, you know, gone up on, uh, above a first or second story building, right? Or whatever it is that um, these experiences, they're, they're just, they're not aware of them. How, how do you bring that to, how do you merge those two worlds? Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, that's always been a struggle, right? It's just like, uh, so, you know, a lot of people who are go, probably going to like my clothes IG account, right? They was like, uh, my good friend said the other day, he's just like, man, how do you be, you know, you party all night, you be at Tao all night long, and then the next morning you're, t- you're tweeting about the Tao. Because uh, I'm, I'm like, number one, I'm a complex person. But two, it's like, I have both. I could go out, party, kick it, hang out. But then at the same time, I'm always reading my, the newspapers in the next day to stay informed, stay updated. And I think that too many times there's a lot of people who feel like, you know, whatever my profession and my title is, I have to be that 24-7, yeah. even if I'm not that as a person. Yeah. And I think what happens is that when you just always living up to your title, your profession, your income, your salary, your educational level, then those who you might, the community you come from, and those you might want to serve or influence, they they lose, they don't, they don't, they don't see as credible anymore. Even though you might be, like you might go to the cookout, you totally credible. You still everything you were when you're growing up on the south side of West Side of Chicago, you're still that person, but you're not, you don't present your that self way publicly. And I always pre- present both of my sides publicly. So one of the things I definitely think, you know, I look at a potential person uh, or people I look up to is like kind of the shirt I'm wearing today, like Young Enterprise Society. So Q and Cliff Elamine, they kind of put a brand and a logo around and a, and a movement around saying, hey, we like the cool nerds. We all came in the inner city. We like sports. We like partying. We like all these different things. But we also want to give back. We also want to create change. So fast forward, I gave them like one of their first grants when I worked with Department of Children and Families in 2012. And then today, they own the largest black-owned operated tech accelerator program in the entire world. Wow, that's amazing. That's uh, I mean, the world needs more of that, obviously, mm-hmm. right? And I'm curious through all this. I mean, you're you're a very even-keeled person, mm-hmm. right? And then you talk about again, the, the spiritual mentor, and but but in terms of a mindset, right? Where were you always like this? Is something that you had to develop? Um, yeah, when you wake up in the morning, I mean, what what's what's going through your mind that you know your priorities seem to be in order, but you also uh, you know, have a, an allowance for those things that you know you want to do that maybe don't necessarily fit with those priorities, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, so right now, like, yeah, to the point about like different angles and faces, like, you know, I'm a cancer, so I'm moody by nature. Like, any any person who's dated me is like, it's like a roller coaster. And at the same time, too, is like, when I get in the boardroom, I'm dead serious. Like, I, I people have gotten the 4 a.m. emails from me, they've gotten the, you know, me reading them the rights because I'm very passionate about everything I'm working on. But I had to also learn how to develop to say, hey, just because I'm passionate, just because I think the problem is severe, uh, that, you know, it's, I think it's unacceptable that in the world's richest country, we have so much concentrated poverty. Um, I also had to learn patience. And that just comes with age. And that comes with me being open and receptive to a lot of the guidance that comes from my mentors and also my closest friends. So when I did my last business, I did it intentionally with partners. That's why it's called I2J Group, Isaac, John, Jamie, because John and Isaac balanced me out. Uh, so Isaac's, you know, is a child of Chicago. He's a literally a preacher's kid, never cusses. Doesn't drink. He doesn't even have. He don't even eat condiments on his hamburgers and hot dogs. Like that was crazy. But usually when we. But the thing is, he's such a great people person. He balances me out. So I'm always a person. So I'll, well, how we always do our business. I say anything that makes us money, I'll work on. 
anything that takes money, like expenses, he works on because, you know, I'm going to lose it with vendors. He won't. I'm, you know, I might, it, might, it might be a more complicated conversation with me when our staff is saying, like, oh, when did I get my bonus? I'm like, I don't see bonus work. He's going to do it in a more even killed way. <laughs> uh, but when it comes to customer relations, I'm great. When it comes to funder, donor, investor relations, I'm great. So that's how I have to just you know find balance in my life. And so you know, on that, what's next for you? What uh, what can we look forward to support you in? And um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the main thing I'm working on right now is definitely uh, starting about over three months ago. I became the director of business and workforce development at Revolution Institute. Uh, so it's a local nonprofit launched by Saquon Lawrence and my coworker uh, Fatima, who in which we are basically trying to work in communities in the south and west side to say, hey, we need to start creating shared prosperity in those communities. So it's not about creating a workforce program, which is focused on somebody's uh, P&L or income statement. We're actually trying to focus on growing assets because you really want to solve issues of concentrated poverty. It can't be at a, on a, on a, at a wage. It has to be at ownership. So one of the things we're working on, we're partnering with like Iman and Daily Intech College and other you know, Teamwork Inglewood, other great community partners, is saying, let's identify in cohorts of 25 unemployed, under, underemployed men and women in the South and West Side communities, put them through a year-long rigorous program in which we're going to upskill them into advanced manufacturing jobs with a focus on mechatronics, welding, uh, CNC machine, and stuff of that nature. And based on uh, my, you know, my research is that, you know, if the average salary in Inglewood is around, you know, 22000 a year, we got it to 50000 a year, we're looking like a net income benefit of plus 77% once you deduct the program costs. So that's a large, you know, that's a, hopefully reduce recidivism, increase your tax base, and most importantly, give income and means to families that don't currently have it. But then in 2024, we're also going to launch our uh, first business, or our second business, because the first one was Revolution Workshop, in which we're going to launch a manufacturing company uh, that we'll own and operate, focusing on maintenance mechanic services. Um, so those individuals going through the program, if they want to work with a, in, a, in a business that has a cooperative, so everybody be a worker owner in the business, and they'll also be able to share in the upside uh, as well and have equity in the company, not just earning a salary. And that's something we're definitely going to launch because for us, it's not about just having a workforce development program that has to live off grants and public assistance. It's about if we're talking about people becoming independent, we have to be independent, too. So our business is going to help sustain our program. It's amazing, brother. Well, I appreciate you so much. Very exciting. And, uh, you know, just what an incredible story, incredible human being you are. And I'm excited to have you part of this community and just be your friend, man. So thank you. No, thank you so much. And thank you for having me. And I, I definitely want anything I could do for you. I'm going to support you. Anybody who's listening, like I'm here as a resource. And how can people find you? Yeah, I mean, best way, you could definitely go to my LinkedIn. So it's uh, Jamie Elder, J-A-M-I-E-E-L-D-E-R. Um, you could also, that's one of the best ways. Um, we had a conversation about, hey, I got to be more <laughs> public on my IG. So right now you can go to Shirley's.boy. Uh, it's my mother's name because when I was growing up, uh, people didn't know my name. They was like, that's Shirley's boy. Uh, so that's how phenomenal my mother was. So I kind of like, since so she passed away in 2014, I wanted to honor her, so I give her my, my whole social media is dedicated to her. So if you go to s h i r l e y s dot b o y, that's how you get on my IG. You can see me again partying, enjoying the nightlife, but also doing great things during the day. It's amazing. Well, thank you, brother. Thank you again, and look forward to the next one. I appreciate it. Thank you a lot.